Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry creates imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms, inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the light of Paradiso. At the beginning of his journey, Dante enters the Silver Oscura, the dark wood, and is confronted by a lion so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. Scared and alone, Dante feels like giving up on his journey. It is at this point, Virgil, his guide, appears and gives him the strength to continue. Female founder Rosh Matani created the Leone Medallion inspired by this story as a reminder to be strong in difficult times. Join Alighieri's Signature Lion Club for strength and courage on all of your adventures. Visit www.alighieri.co.uk for more. And just for our listeners, they are offering 10% off with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the acclaimed art historian, curator and pop art expert, Dr. Flavia Frigeri. Currently the Chanel curator for the collection at the National Portrait Gallery in London, Flavia has held numerous curatorial posts at the world's most prestigious institutions, such as the Curator of International Art at Tate Modern, where she co-curated the staggeringly brilliant exhibition The World Goes Pop in 2015 and was responsible for Henri Matisse, The Cutouts in 2014, Paul Clay, Making Visible 2013 and Ruins in Reverse. From 2016-2020, Flavia was a teaching fellow in the History of Art department at UCL, where I was lucky enough to study, and continues to be a long-standing member of faculty on Sotheby's Institute's MA in Contemporary Art. She is the author of Pop Art and Women Artists, both in the Thames and Hudson's Art Essential series, and the co-editor of a volume of collected essays, New Histories of Art in the Global Post-War Era, Multiple Modernisms. As an independent curator, her recent curatorial work includes Carol Rama, Eyes of Eyes at Levy Gorvey in New York in 2019, Boom, Art and Industry in the 1960s Italy, Invisible Cities, and Evolutionary Travels in the inaugural show of the Fondation Art in Buenos Aires, among many others. But the reason why we are speaking with Flavia today is because she is also a pop art expert and her groundbreaking exhibition, The World Goes Pop, instead told a global story of pop art, breaking new grounds along the way and revealing a different side to the artistic and cultural phenomenon. From Latin America to Asia and from Europe to the Middle East, this explosive exhibition explored art produced around the world during the 60s and 70s, showing how different cultures and countries responded to the movement which included one of the greatest artists, I think, of the 20th century. 
country, Marisol Escobar, who went by the name of Marisol. The Venezuelan artist hailed for her satirical sculptures with their deadpan expressions and awkward, playful stances. Flavio Figueri, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Katie? I'm really good, thank you. So thank you so much for coming on. As you know, I've been an admirer of yours for a very long time, so this is a long time coming. And I was so thrilled when we settled on Marisol, because Marisol for me is really one of the kind of great enigmas, in a way, of the post period. I mean, first taking up abstract expressionist-style painting, she soon abandoned it for her playful sculptures and became a central part of the development of pop, referencing political subjects, celebrity figures, John F. Kennedy, to the British royal family. I mean, in the early 60s, she was even known to be more famous than her friend Andy Warhol. But before we get into her brilliant satirical oeuvre, I want to first ask you about the subject of pop, because this utterly fascinates me, especially as history has so often written it in a sort of particular masculine way. It was the 50s and 60s. This is the era of colour television, cinemascope, Elvis, Marilyn, the space race. So as you are a pop art expert, I want to ask what attracts you to the subject of pop? I mean, I guess what really attracts me to pop is the fact that it was maybe the first movement that truly, truly engaged with everything that was happening at the time. So precisely what you just said, Elvis, the Beatles, plastics. It was a time of real excitement and artists, especially young artists, so in their early 20s, were embracing this language, working on pop. It was just so exciting to look at that era and to really hone on a movement that I think we only associated with a few bigs. You know, everyone knows Lichtenstein, everyone knows Andy Warhol, but very few know about Marisol, for instance, and that was part of the excitement of pop. Pop gave me the opportunity to look beyond the known. Totally. And this idea that they were also embracing commercialization, and especially in the post-war period, that commercialization very much sort of centering on the smiling housewife. And then these women just totally turned on its head. That's what's really brilliant when it comes to female pop artists. And this is kind of like the unexpected trick. Because obviously, women were pop's favorite subject. Yes. I mean, think of Vesselman. It's all about the women and sort of the eroticized body and all of that. But the female artists who were making pop, they were turning this view completely upside down. It was no longer about their body being presented for male pleasure. It was about their body as a site of emancipation. And before the feminist movement truly came to center stage. So they are proto-feminists. And for a long time, they were not recognized as proto-feminists. And this is what really excited me when I was researching The World Goes Pop. We traveled around the world with Jessica Morgan, my co-curator. And we would visit a lot of private collections, institutions, artists. And everywhere we went, the first thing everyone would tell us is, X, Y, and Z is a great male pop artist of our country. And so we would visit them. We would be sitting in the living room and we would look around and suddenly we would spot in a corner a painting. And be like, so who is that by? It would be like, oh, my ex-wife, <laughs> my sister. <laughs> what? So we would immediately realize that women were present all over the world as yeah. pop artists, but they had really been cast to the corner of a room. Oh my God, and just to think of the kind of wealth. I mean, we obviously have like people like Jan Howarth, Pauline Boaty in the UK, even Axel in Belgium. But also, obviously, pop is such a fluid movement. I mean, all movements are. I feel terrible over categorising artists. But for me, Marisol really does feel like a pioneer. I mean, I'd love to ask you, when did you first come across her work? 
Well, it's interesting that you ask me that because Marisol, for a long time, was one of those artists that we couldn't quite figure out. Oh. In a sense, we always liked her work, and I particularly was really attracted to her work. I knew there was something there, but because she eschews categorization, it was very hard to know where she would sit in the show because she was pop, but she was also folk. She was not about the hard edge image. She was about craft. Yeah, there was so much to it that, in a way, we had to question whether we could make justice to all these layers in her work. Yeah. Oh my gosh, fascinating. And do you remember the work that you saw and your kind of immediate reactions? I remember seeing "Mi Mama Yo," which is the work that we ended up including. Which, once I started really knowing about her work, I realized it was a very special and different work. It stood on its own, but that was the one I first saw, and then I kind of started digging into this crazy Amarisol world yeah. <laughs> and being like completely fascinated. For some time, we were trying to track down the portrait she did of Andy Warhol. Oh wow! Yes, the one that's kind of a box. Yeah, yes. it's a box, Andy box. Yes, but with a little feet. Yeah, absolutely. I should also say for the audience that I've actually got a mug at Flavia's house of me, Mama Eo, and so I'm looking at this work right now. But I mean, the Andy Warhol's absolutely fantastic. Fantastic, And also just the fact that, you know, a woman would also immortalise her as this very boxy figure. It's quite a bold move to do. Absolutely. And it's not just immortalising him as a boxy figure that in a way is also one could read as a play on minimalism yes, and the yes. structures of minimalism. But it's the fact that on top of that, she draws his face. A lot of her sculptures are also about drawing, about photography. So she's layering all of these media, one on top of the other, to make something that is completely unique. And that's why it's very hard to say she is a full-blown pop artist, even though she was hanging out with that crew. So she sits somewhere pretty much liminal. Yeah, but I find it fascinating that you say, you know, she kind of bridges pop and folk as well, because in a way, her work is 100% both. It's 100% so many different things, but also the fact that you do have this very much like the human hand of the drawing, and actually we'll come to discuss her subjects in a bit. You know, that I find is absolutely fascinating. No, it's absolutely fascinating. And that's why she's so unique, mm. because she does all of this. And also she wasn't working with a sort of factory-like team. It was just her as well. But I want to go back to the beginning of Marisol Escobar's life. She was born in 1930 to a wealthy Venezuelan family. I mean, tell me about her upbringing. Where did she grow up? Who was her family? So her family was uh, relatively well off. They were traveling all the time. And in a way, she was a bit of a nomad. And it's something she kind of kept hold of throughout her life. She liked living in multiple places. And... Uh, she very much grew up between different cultures, so she's a truly multicultural figure. And the one thing that really kept almost like the fil rouge of her upbringing was art. From a very, very young age, she was interested in art. So even though she would move every couple of years with her family, wherever she went, she would be a star. So in her art classes, she would always win the prizes. <gasps> that was the one thing that was very much consistent from the very beginning. Yeah, but then I mean, it wasn't always a happy child as well. I mean, when she was just 11, her mother committed suicide. Yes, and that is something that stayed with her for all her life. It's something that she didn't necessarily speak about. And in fact, this brings us to something that is somewhat of a real traumatic experience for Marisol, which is she stopped speaking the moment her mother died. 
And by this, it's not she was completely silent. She would just keep it to the bare minimum. So just to communicate the real basics. But she didn't feel the need to communicate. And this stayed with her for the rest of her life. I mean, she obviously, when she grew up, she was a bit more communicative. But bottom line, she was a very shy and very reserved woman. And this has always, I think, in a way, fueled the, the Marisol enigma. When she became popular in New York in the 1960s, she was popular, but still very, very reserved. Yeah. And you know how people are fascinated by mysterious people like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's fascinating when she said, I really didn't talk for years except what was absolutely necessary, but how amazing that she can kind of have that outlook through art as a way of talking and that kind of visual vocabulary. Absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes one needs to remember that an artist is communicating through their art. Yeah. Because they think that everything they need to say, they're already saying it with their work. So they're like... Why do I need to say more? Yeah. Probably Marisol wouldn't join your podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I mean, in 1949, age 19, she went to Paris for a year, trading and painting. I mean, this is fascinating that she was working in Paris at this post-war period because this was the kind of beginning of nouveau realism and the fact that people like Nikita Sanfal, Alina Shapovnikov, they were all there. I mean, tell us about this moment in Paris at the post-war period. Well, it was a really crucial moment in a sense because it was a moment where a lot of artists were coming together and they were picking up the residues of the war, the trauma, trying to make sense of what has been described as this very existential moment. But at the same time, it was the moment when Paris was realizing that New York was taking over. So it's a bit of an odd situation, I think, in Marisol's case, to say, I'm going to study in Paris versus in New York. She went there in 1949 for a year, and she studied at the Académie Julien, which was one of these very traditional institutions, and she hated it. She hated Paris, she hated being there. Um, The whole experience was awful, because she didn't find herself at ease in that context, and was really kind of adamant to get back to the States. And then after studying in Paris, in 1950, she then moved to New York City. And obviously, this is 1950. I mean, this is the stroke of the American avant-garde. And I love this. She said that, at last, I have found people like myself. I mean, what New York City did you enter? I mean, tell us what this place was like. Well, she entered in a very exciting New York City, in a New York City that was super vibrant, Mm. that was seeing the birth of abstract expressionism, that was seeing itself as a major center and no longer as a periphery in comparison to Europe. So it was exciting. It was all happening. But I find her statement to be very, very cheeky, considering (laughs) that bottom line, she never found anyone like herself and never looked for it. It's not she came to New York and became an abstract expressionist. She came to New York and tried out several things. She studied with Hans Hoffman, who traditionally was the teacher of most abstract expressionist artists. But she went for it and then kind of said, nah, that's not for me. I'm going to go off and do my sculptures. So I find it very funny that she says she found her people when really she never looked for her people anywhere. 
Yeah, but I mean, this education is so fascinating. I'm obviously living around the world, being exposed to so many different cultures, Paris, Venezuela, but also America. And I love this shift in about 1953 that she quickly abandoned painting for sculpture after seeing examples of pre-Columbian art at a gallery. She says, it started as a kind of rebellion. Everything was so serious and the people I met were so depressing. I started doing something funny that I would be happier and it worked. And these works are absolutely fascinating that she goes on to make in the early 60s. How was she kind of taking aspects of pre-Columbian art, American art, but also stuff from her upbringing? Because this was the year of Rauschenberg as well. Yes, and it's interesting because she actually speaks about Rauschenberg and she sees Rauschenberg perhaps as the only person similar to her, even though not really. But she admits to the fact that there were some overlaps in terms of their interests. I think she's really responding to the inside in terms of like taking from this heritage, the pre-Columbian, the sort of Latin American heritage that she had been exposed to, but never really fully. Similarly, she was taking from the burgeoning interest in popular culture that she really very much found on the streets in New York. And she was kind of merging all of these and trying to like figure out a route that would be playful for herself. And I think this is something we should remind ourselves. She comes across as this very stern figure, but I think she was having throughout her life a lot of fun (laughs) doing what she wanted to do. Yes. And that's why she features in a lot of her works. In a way, she's kind of toying with her own self. And she started out by saying, you know what, I mean, to make these really odd boxes with lots of different figurines. And this is going to be a reference to the retablos, but at the same time, it's going to be like a mix of things. Yeah, absolutely. And then the works that she does start to make in the early 1960s are just remarkable. They're really unlike anything I know at all. And also nothing like what was happening in New York whatsoever. So I'd love to start by talking about the Kennedy family from 1960. I mean, this is fantastic. Her works always kind of have this personal aspect, but this political aspect, this playful aspect, but also this kind of, I don't know, she's just such a fantastic commentator on the world. And as someone looking back like 60 years on, the way that she's capturing these people. So tell us about the Kennedy family from 19. Yeah, it's interesting. She does these first works in New York when she comes back. There is actually quite a lot of attention. And she gets a show at Leo Castelli. And in fact, she gets a show before Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. So she's there before them. And Leo Castelli, for those who don't know, was a very popular gallery, a bit like, you know, Hauser and Vert, Gagosian today. She gets this show. It is a success. And interestingly, she's featured on Life magazine, and the title of the article goes, Latin Beauty's Host of Stern People Staring Pets. (gasps) She had these slightly ominous (laughs) cats in the show, I must admit. And it's apparent from this title of this article, something that will trouble her for the rest of her life which is the fact that attention is immediately drawn to her beauty, which is a double-edged sword, because in a way it kind of helped uh, promote her art and gave her a lot of visibility in magazines at the time. At the same time, it's a source of frustration, to the point that after this article and after the success of this first show, she escapes New York. She goes to Rome She's friends with Conrad Marcarelli, a very important artist of the time, who helps her find a studio. And she's really escaping. And the escape is something she'll do very often in her life. When things get overheated, she leaves. And she leaves for Europe. 
She's hanging out with her friend Conrad Barcarelli. He helps her find a studio. And she writes from Rome to Leo Castelli saying, I'm looking for myself. I'm trying out these new things. And she's making these sculptures out of wax that she then gets cast as bronzes. And she's really like exploring, but mainly escaping from this very overheated exposure that she had at Castelli. But so she gets sort of tired of Europe. Back to New York. And that's a moment when things really pick up. That's a moment when she leaves behind the wax sculptures, ready to move on to wood. And wood becomes the primary material that she uses to make art in the 1960s. And wood is what she uses to make the Kennedy family, for instance, which is one of the first family groups. She makes a lot of families. She's very interested in these familial relationships, which, I mean, the cheap psychologist in me could say it's probably trying to work through some of her traumas with her own family, her own upbringing. But part of me also thinks she's interested in the subject of relationships. And family is an easy one to deal with the idea of relationships, connections. And she goes on to do a mix of famous families and not famous families. So the Kennedys, obviously, at the time, are the pop family. Kennedy is the first president to truly use television as a medium for his campaign. He is a baby of that booming era of communications. And a lot of artists are turning to the Kennedys. But what's interesting is Marisol chooses to depict the nuclear family. She doesn't depict Kennedy on his own. It's a family. But what I find so fascinating about this, I mean, you know, I have a thousand and one things to say about myself, but in the sense that, you know, actually what her sculptures do, so these kind of like boxy figures sculptures, they're almost life-size, would you say? They're almost life-size. They're hard to classify. Yeah. And this, this we've been saying throughout. And so they're kind of exceptional in their kind because they read as wooden sculptures but actually they're not they're boxes and so that again is that play with minimalism but also they're elaborate she dresses them up she styles them in a way so she will create their face and the face can be done in many different ways depending on the sculpture it can be a photograph it can be a mini television and then she styles them with necklaces and they can be real or painted there's some of her groups which have actually there's one in the Whitney Museum that has a woman holding a purse so it's all like a real mix and this was in a way incredibly playful but also astonishing but people could relate to it easily and this meant that she was incredibly popular her shows were visited by thousands of people ostensibly (laughs) amazing gosh but I mean I'm fascinated by the Kennedy family as well because coming back to this idea of relationships the fact that you know, and actually reflecting on her own relationships, although they are a family group, it's the fact that they are boxed in and actually they're muted and they're silent and actually you can't get through to them and they are austere. They're not real. I know they have some real aspects in the sense that some of their faces are drawn on. And yes, they have these, you know, actually found objects in a way, forks like dinner date or something and these hats that they wear or these boots that they wear. But at the same time, none of it's real. And so there's a part of me which thinks, is she trying to kind of get at what are the kind of real authentic or the kind of inauthenticity of relationships? I think she's trying to do lots of different things. She's trying to stage them in the way they stage themselves. 
So there's another work that does this, which I think is the most beautiful that she ever made called The Party. And it's a work apparently she made after going to a party of Lee Radsville, who was the sister of Jacqueline Kennedy. Because the thing was, Marisol was very in the fancy circles in New York. And she would go to all these parties and really observe the women and observe the way they pose themselves, the way they dress themselves. And as you say, they become these very austere hermetic figures that don't necessarily interact. So it's about relationships in that she thinks about groups, but it's also about the individual being very distinct from everything that surrounds him or her. And in the case of the Kennedys, I think it's really coming out of the Kennedys being so present in the visual culture of the time and so present as a perfect family. Yes, and what's amazing about it is the fact that it's like the televised persona. So it's like, actually, what are people like when you see them on a box? You know, they actually appear like boxed in two-dimensional figures. Exactly. And I think she is playing on this because obviously her sculptures are three-dimensional, but the way the faces are portrayed are very flat. So really to emphasize almost that zoom effect we've all experienced yes. this year of looking at people like on a screen and seeing just their very flat face, which sometimes you wonder, is it a real person? But she was kind of thinking about that. What does it mean to see a person and to think you know a person just by looking at a television screen? Totally. And also thinking about the sort of Instagram age as well. And we think we know all these people or whatever, but we actually don't. And they're, they are real humans behind all of that. But I mean, I'm fascinated. She also, this beautiful work that you mentioned, The Party from 1965 to 66. I love this idea of the theme of masks that so often comes up in her work. And I read this fantastic thing. I think it was in the Washington Post. And they talk about this idea in 1961 for a panel discussion at the club, which was where all the abstract expressionists hung out with a collective of mostly male artists in New York. Apparently she appeared wearing a white mask tied on with strings and people in the audience began stamping their feet shouting at her to remove the mask and let them see her face and as the uproar apparently reached a crescendo she pulled the strings and the mask slipped off only to reveal her face made up in white makeup exactly like the mask so it's like the way that she was communicating and what do masks mean and especially for women the way that men were almost masking them with these kind of inhumane perfect figures yeah, no, definitely. I think there she's being insanely cheeky. In a sense, <laughs> she's going there. It's a panel that she knows it's all about, like, you know, macho, male action. Male <laughs> action. And she comes and communicates herself, most literally. She adds a sort of performative twist to her own self, even though she never made performance work. That is a truly performative gesture that she does. And it shows what you're saying, that women are idolized, yes. they're forced, and especially at that time when there's a real hype around women being these perfect creatures, beautiful, but also incredibly good at home, perfect with kids, like this idea of perfection that women have to struggle with and still have to struggle with today. And she kind of unmasks that mask, showing that there is always this layer to things and that perfection is completely fake. But in the same way, by painting her own face, she's also making a point of being like, you think that's fake, but I'm showing you that that is as similar as I am. And I think that is something specific to her work. And 
you must think that a lot of her work features herself. And I think going back to a point you were making earlier, the age of Instagram and how we see people and how we think we know people. Marisol was like a proto-selfie artist. She was always working from photographs, even when she was depicting her own self. Interestingly, she never used a mirror. And she was using her face, she says, because she was the person she knew better, but also because she used to work at night and she only had access to her own self. But I think she really liked this idea of populating these worlds that are very enticing at first, but rather dark when you come close to them later with her own self. I recently wrote an article about this where I compared her to being John Malkovich. Yeah. I mean, she was doing it throughout her work. So yes, I think that episode uh, at the club is quirky, but also it underpins something that she believes profoundly in, this idea of masking, concealing, but also revealing at once. Absolutely. And then in 1962, she makes one of the most extraordinary sculptures, I think, called Love, which is not, well, it's sort of figurative. It's not a full body work. It is essentially the lower half of a face with a mouth and a nose. And that's horizontally. And then inserting it is a sort of phallic like Coke bottle. And we can see it's a Coke bottle, which, you know, it's almost kind of like suffocating to look at. I mean, tell us about this work. I mean, that is, in a way, I always thought of that as the odd one out from that period because it's very different from every work she makes in the 1960s. As you say, it's very phallic, it's very eroticized, but it's also very political work. And in fact, I'll let you on a secret, we considered that for the show because it's such an interesting way of taking the Coca-Cola symbol of American imperialism. And just as a parenthesis, a lot of artists were doing that. They were taking Coke as this sort of stand-in for American imperialism. And she forces the Coke bottle upon this woman, which is not even necessarily a face. It's a mask. Yes! Oh my gosh! It's almost like a death mask. Mm. It's very bleak. And as you say, it has a real strong phallic connotation. And also the title is interesting, Love. What kind of love are we looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, and to think at the, you know, just to kind of alluding to not just the silencing of women, but also the era's brutal sexual imagery and the violence that went unpunished. I mean, the fact that, you know, marital rape wouldn't even be criminalized in America until 1993. I mean, there are so many aspects of this work that, I mean, for me, it's a kind of, it's, it's a really small work, but it's a symbol of protest as well. The interesting thing is Marisol doesn't appear as a political artist, but she was. I think in many of her works and even later on, she was reflecting around ideas of like poverty. Yeah, the Dust Bowl with those works of the family. She was kind of almost mirroring Dorothea Lange's photographs. Yeah, civil rights. They're almost hidden traces in her work. But this is where she's really trying to make a political statement, even though she's never doing so explicitly. And obviously none of the critics at the time pick on this. They're still thinking of her in terms of this hybrid figure that's like a Latin American Audrey Hepburn. That's how she was often characterized. Or as this woman who's involved in pop, but not really. So she's not really being given full credit for her work. 
Totally. It's it's fascinating. I mean, there's this amazing quote in the New York Times. They say, you know, she was clever as the devil and catty as can be. And, and I think this is really interesting because the critics took it all on quite surface level. But actually, it reveals this such deep rooted, you know, context in it as well. I think, you know, she was suffering from something that all female artists suffered from at this time, especially pop artists. They were being taken very much at surface level. And very often they were very pretty young women. And that was kind of the forefront concern for a critic. Ridiculous. And it's only now that we're fully appreciating the degree to which she was, in fact, a very interesting artist. Yeah, I mean, I think she later in life, she said, in the 60s, men did not feel threatened by me. They thought I was cute and spooky, but they didn't take my art so seriously. Which is sad unsurprising as well but I mean like you said thousands queued up for her exhibition at Sydney Janice's gallery I mean she was just like the kind of pop sensation she was friends with Louise Nevelson Andy Warhol Roy Lichtenstein Frank O'Hara I mean George O'Keefe oh my gosh what she made a portrait of George O'Keefe no later on I think it was in the 70s she made a whole series of works featuring other artists and George O'Keefe was one of them It was mostly her pals. So there was Willem de Kooning. She had a brief stint affair with him. She was portraying them. And the funny thing about George O'Keefe is she went down to New Mexico to spend time with George O'Keefe. Oh my God. I need to see the records of this. Took pictures of George O'Keefe there and then went back to her studio and made the portrait. And it's a great portrait because George O'Keefe is sitting on this rock and she has two animals besides her so she's trying to always capture the artists in their setting but you're right she was very very popular and she was popular with the masses and this is something that I noticed with I would say a few of the pop artists that I was looking at for the pop show Marta Minujín would be another example she's an Argentinian pop artist they were incredibly fun for people to see Families apparently would bring their kids in New York to Sydney Janice Gallery where Marisol was having her shows and just showing around their kids. It was playful. So on a surface level, the work enticed people and people wanted to go. They wanted to see it. But I think at the time it wasn't being taken seriously. And she says that herself. Yeah. And in 1968, she represented Venezuela at the Venice Biennale. And then in the same year, you know, she was one of the four women artists out of 150 who exhibited at Documenta. I mean, there was so much success. But then after Mi Mame Yo, the work that you mentioned at the beginning in 1968, I mean, her career starts to decline. And it's interesting because it's the cusp of the feminist movement. One interesting fact, 1968, Venice Biennale. And supposedly she was supposed to win one of the main prizes but because it was 1968 and there were the student boycotts oh yes she didn't in the end so that could have been another very very big breakthrough moment but possibly that would have alienated her even further because the thing with Marisol is at any point in her career where she was reaching real success so you know, late 1960s was really her moment after the shows she had in the 60s. She kind of felt the need to escape, felt the need to go away. And so that's also why we see what one could describe as a decline in her production. She takes off and goes on a world tour. She really travels the world to escape from all of this success and rethinks as a result her work, And in the 1970s, there's a sharp decline in terms of sculptures. She's making far fewer of them. 
And she's suddenly making, as a result of her passion for scuba diving, she's making these <laughs> Amazing. really interesting sculptures of aquatic creatures, wow. fishes. Fantastic. And they're fantastic because they're made of wood. There's like the fish, the profile of the fish. And then inserted in the mouth of the fish, you can find these mini self-portraits <gasps> of Marisol. Wow. So they're quite surreal things. And she would hate me for using the term surreal because when <laughs> someone said her work had surreal connotations, she was like, you don't get my work. So she would say, I'm not getting her work. But I do think there is some surreal elements to it. So she's, yeah, total change. She's having fewer shows. She's less in the media, fewer articles. But that was a very deliberate choice in her case. Yeah. And then in 1981, I mean, actually three years before Alice Neal's death, Alice Neal paints, oh my God, I mean, just one of the most, one of my favourite portraits actually by Neal. And it's it's really sad. It's not like a Neil portrait. Neil actually gives her a bit of empathy and sympathy, which she doesn't often do with a lot of people. And it's her kind of looking into the distance. She's kind of clasping her hands that are very bony and you can really see her frown lines. And she's not looking at Neil. Neil's not scrutinising her. There's something you can almost see like sort of behind her eyes in a way. Yeah, it's a very expressive portrait and she comes across as a very somber character with a heavy heart but I think that's who she was actually yeah and I think that very much explains why as a young girl she stopped talking why she was so reserved but also explains in a way her friendship with Andy Warhol yes because this is the thing that people are often surprised she was you know friends with apparently the most social artist you could find in New York in the 1960s but actually Warhol was another very socially awkward person. And that's why they really bonded around feeling quite uncomfortable in the presence of others. And I think Neil captures this. She captures Marisol as this person who was very much close in her own self, very self-reflective, very lost in her thoughts. I never met her. Even though when I was working on this show, she was still alive, but she wasn't meeting anyone at that point. But everyone I spoke to at the time who knew her said she was an incredibly reserved person. I just thought, wouldn't it be absolutely amazing to have the Andy Warhol portrait by Neil side by side, the Marisol? I know, I know. <laughs> it, would, it would be great. Please, it would, someone do it, it. It would be a great pairing. <laughs> it would really be fantastic. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just a fascinating artist's perception of artists and just insight into that. But I mean, in 1982, she made this work called Self-Portrait Looking at the Last Supper, which was, again, she returned to these giant, totally immersive sculptures again. Yes, she made a work that is a departure, we could say, from some of her subjects. Uh, you know, previously she had done, you know, the royal family, Jeff K. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, that's full on. Yeah. But it's interesting because she really talks about Leonardo's Last Supper. So, and this is something common for pop artists, this appropriation of masterpieces. And in her case, she appropriates the image of the Last Supper and makes it full-blown into this giant sculpture. And she talks about her interest in the Renaissance and in her interest in what that image truly represents about that specific point in time. So in a way, it kind of relates to a broader idea of popular culture. In a sense, she's scrutinizing the way Leonardo painted The Last Supper 
filtering it through his own times. And she's doing that too. And she's putting herself at the center of it by inserting this rather ominous, I would say, self-portrait that's staring at Jesus and the Last Supper. (laughs) And in a way, this is maybe me being superimposing a very feminist reading on it, but I always thought that was the ultimate feminist overtake of a very masculine masterpiece. I mean, she's basically saying, hey, Leonardo... You've done your job, but now I'm putting myself in there too, in the mix. So I think it's a genius work on so many levels. But also it shows that she never lost her interest for sculpture and large-scale sculpture. Totally. But I mean, in the 2000s, she suddenly had this huge revival. I mean, it's fascinating, this renewed appreciation of her exceptional work began. But slowly, in 2001, she had a retrospective in Purchase, New York. And then in 2010, her work was including a subductive subversion women pop artists at the Brooklyn Museum and then at the Kunsthalle in Vienna. I mean, why do you think this was, this renewed interest? So there was in the early 2000s, a greater interest as a result of what was happening at the Brooklyn Museum with Judy Chicago going there and all of that. I think there was a real feminist reawakening on an institutional level for figures like Marisol. And there was a curator at the Brooks Museum in Memphis called Marina Pacini, who did a lot of research in terms of trying to dig out where all the Marisols were, because this is something worth bearing in mind, and it happens with a lot of women. You know, they not necessarily had an archive, they not necessarily kept track of where their works went. And so to embark on the rediscovery of someone like Marisol means to embark on a rediscovery of where the works are. And this culminated in the show that they did at the Brooks Museum in 2014, where finally it was the first time that a huge body of work by Marisol could be seen. Yeah, and then in 2016, she died aged 85 of pneumonia in Manhattan. But how amazing that she got to see that resurgence and interest in her work. Yes. I mean, I didn't meet her, but oh. surely she would have been really happy. For me, it was a very special experience to include Mi Mama Yo in uh, the exhibition because that was the one work that she always kept with herself. She never wanted to part from it. It was a work that had a very special meaning for her because it was her self-portrait as a child with her mother. And it was something that she really clinged on for a lifetime. It's a giant beast, by the way. Very, very heavy. It has a very strong presence as a work. Oh my God, that's amazing. Oh God, that's really emotional. I guess what I really love about Marisol is the way she can be so humorous and whimsical, but at the same time, deadly serious. And I love that. I mean, I love artists who can strike that balance. It's not an easy one to achieve. I think it's so interesting when artists manage to say something so important, but keep it so accessible, but also very ironic. And and then, you know, on a purely visual level, because at the end of the day, that's also important for an art historian, I love her work. And also, I guess it resonates as a story that I really feel there's more there to be told. Flavio Fregheri, thank you so much for just this fantastic conversation of Marisol. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and just so insightful. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could have met Marisol, what would you have said to her? 
You have great style. <laughs> she was very stylish. <laughs> Maybe I would have asked her, although I wouldn't have gotten a straight answer, and I'm sure about this, what she really meant with some of her works, what the masking was all about. But surely she wouldn't have told me, because that was part of the myth. <laughs> yes, exactly. She would have just stared at you dead Yeah. Flora Figueri, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 74th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Flavia Frigeri on the trailblazing artist Marisol. It was so fascinating to hear all about Marisol's incredible life and career, and I urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Menenic, and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>